I guess it's Northampton. Northampton or Northampton. East Hampton. <laughs> Which is bizarrely southwest of Northampton <laughs> and north of Southampton. Well. <laughs> I know, it's painful. But what's not painful is welcome to Super Duperstitious, <laughs> the comedy podcast about the science of spooky stuff. How about? No? We'll take it. No? All right. I'm Jake. And I'm Wyatt. And uh, welcome back to another week, everybody. And welcome to the first week of your of the rest of your life to our new listeners. <laughs> That's right. As promised to those who heard last week's episode, this week's is part one of a super duperstitious special report. Oh boy. We haven't done one of these in a little while. Yeah, not since October. My goodness, which is basically five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are special occasional deep dives that Jake and I do into various topics that we want to really sink our tiny little teeth into. <laughs> and in this in this particular special report, we'll be tackling something near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. Which is, Jake? Cryptozoology. <laughs> That's right. We'll be talking about the secrets of Zool, the <laughs> demon ghost from Ghostbusters. That's right. Not Dana. That's right. Only this. Now, we talked about this well, a lot of times, but we talked about some of the things we're going to be bringing up in this special report back in episode 41, which was when we went to the third annual Cryptozoology Conference. I may even have uh, quoted material from someone who was there that we did not realize was there, but who then wrote about it and that I found in doing my research for my section for today. I am on the edge of my seat. Oh, that's that. very cool. Uh, but for now, I uh, figured we could talk at least a little bit about one of the things that happened, which was the Cryptozoologist of the Year Award. Do you uh, remember that part? Yes, I forgot all about that. Yeah, so Lauren Coleman, who, um, big name in cryptozoology stuff, an owner of the International Cryptozoology Museum, seems like a pretty sweet guy. I was very curious before we met him what he'd be like, and uh, yeah, seems very pleasant. We talked to him yeah. afterward and stuff. Affable gent. Yeah. One of the things he did, I guess, every year he likes to give out this award, the Cryptozoologist of the Year Award. Do you remember who he gave it to? Not the name, but what the person did. Well, I believe they discovered an actual certifiable aminal. Yes. I don't remember if it was like a lizard or some, some, some little sort of, critter. Yeah. And I think somewhere in like Indonesia or something like that. But it was a newly discovered species. And they said like, oh, yeah, this guy, like a cryptozoologist of the year. Great. Kind of what we're going to be getting into is some of the distinctions between cryptozoology and regular zoology. I was going to say he essentially just acknowledged a zoologist yes and uh and so there's weird things there where the overlap is sometimes gray and sometimes it's like yeah you're just taking credit for something that isn't quite the same thing i will say doing even just prep for day one because if you've not heard these before we basically do kind of like a table setter on our first episode of two where we kind of give an example of what we're trying to dive into and then in episode two we will actually do that dive often presenting the science and the uh the nitty gritties where you'll need your notebooks but <laughs> right i will say even in just doing prep for this first part i suddenly fell out of love with cryptozoology <laughs> <laughs> uh violently and um unexpectedly but there it is that's perhaps that's my take home we'll see you guys next week <laughs> the downside is that Wyatt and I, I think also to decide back in episode 41 that based on 
all of the um, criteria for becoming a cryptozoologist, we are cryptozoologists. So yeah, this, <laughs> it is pretty that. much an at will profession. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's taking an interest and then you know learning stuff about stuff, and that is, I mean, that's what people do, and it's very fun in certain ways. But it, we'll we'll get into it. We'll get into it. But before yeah. we get into it, there's something I want to get into, if you'll allow me. Oh boy, and that I think is I sense what's coming on. It's a super duperstitious PSA. Oh. This is a fascinating little something I saw tweeted last week by Carl Giametti, who's a board member of the Chicago Ornithological Society. You can find him. Any relation to Paul? <laughs> it might be. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Chicago. Chicago with an I at the end. Uh, Giametti, you get it. Some of you may have heard, maybe you have, why about the thing where a thousand feral cats were released onto the streets of Chicago last week for the uh, purpose of controlling the rat population. Say what now? Yeah, that's a thing that happened. Uh, brilliant plan. Definitely can't think of multiple glaring examples of this exact mentality going catastrophically wrong basically every no time humans tried this. Aren't cats like nuclear bombs for the neighborhood? Yes, they Ecology. are. And that's, I mean, that's... <laughs> Meant to be the idea. Oh, they're going to kill a bunch of a uh, whole bunch of rats. Won't that be great? Hell, hell fucking yeah, they are. They're going to kill like everything. Yes. We'll, we'll get into that a little more, but there's, it would have been a simple like, oh, outdoor cats are a danger to everything, but there's so much between here and there. We have to talk about this. Really, oh, really no. interesting. So Carl began by looking into the bullshit study that was used to justify the feral cat release. We'll post a link to the study in the episode description. All the data in that quote-unquote study are provided by Feral Cat Advocates, a group called Cats in My Yard. What the fuck? So their data are just from people who have an agenda. And uh, furthermore, all the data came from one person and their anecdotal observations of the cat colonies they had established. Cat so, colonies, oh my god. Uh-huh. So even more uh, uh, bias built into that. Oh no. But the authors of the study are what really caught Carl's attention when he was looking into this stuff. Daniel D. Spihar, or Spihar was listed as an independent researcher and uh, Peter Wolf from an organization called Best Friends Animal Society out of Kanab, Utah, um, also listed as funders. Hmm. Uh, Carl checked Peter Wolf's bio on the organization's website and it says, quote, Peter holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in industrial design. So solid foundation for conducting an ecological study. Yeah. But now is where the weird stuff happens. Engineers always think they got the answer, though. That is true, yes. I was thinking of the entirety of this time last year, and everyone had an opinion about epidemiology. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here's where the weird stuff begins. Carl looked up Best Friends Animal Society on Wikipedia, and what popped up was origins of this group as the process church of final judgment what the fuck is going on jake now from the name of that you can probably kind of guess already it's a little weird check out that church wikipedia's page and you see satanism uh the masons l ron hubbard scientology all kinds of stuff like that i think it was looking into if there's any press on that and there's links to this stuff i'll link to each of these little things sure enough there was press on it it was a doomsday cult jesus christ so basically some theoretically reformed cultists are funding and authoring shoddy studies that author combo apparently also produced five to six similar papers for other cities Studies that purport to show that trap-neuter release is an effective feral cat population control measure. Yikes. But for some actual science on the subject, uh, here's a link we'll also put um, post, which is about 
how trap neuter release isn't actually that effective. Sure, they aren't going to breed after they're um, neutered and spayed, but they're still going to absolutely destroy everything. That's what we were hitting at the beginning here, which is that cats outdoors, bad news. Oh my God. The common house cat is one of the deadliest creatures on the planet pound for pound. Yes. So if you are a cat owner, I mean, I know you might think it's really great for them to get outside and have exercise and stuff like that, but it's safer for them inside too, as far as diseases, uh, things that can happen to them as well. It's just, it's safer for literally all living things around you. If you keep the cat indoors, please keep your cats indoors. And this has been a Super Duper Stitches PSA. I was just going to say what more needs to be said. (laughs) Okay, so figured I would open with a Lauren Coleman quote. Hey, there you go. From his Twitter, posted last June. Before, quote unquote, being discovered, all of these were, quote unquote, cute cryptids. (laughs) Followed by adorable images of a pika and a linguito. Is it a pika? A muntjac and a giant panda. Am I saying these wrong, Jake? I don't know. But, yeah, all just cute little things that uh, are animals we know of now. And, uh, obviously, the point of the post is to playfully shoehorn cryptozoology onto a few pictures of cute animals. But (laughs) it also works to dangerously shoehorn cryptozoology over top of actual science and biological reality. Yeah. And one of the things we do want to get to right off the top here is that in this special report, we're not trying to be all gatekeepy about this stuff. No. But in case anyone's gatekeeper meter is going off right now, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, hopefully we can offer fair criticism where it's due. Yes. And I actually am going to have criticism for both sides of it when it comes to it. So there you go. So allow me to overanalyze this even further <laughs> as it gets weirder and weirder the longer you consider it. For one, Lauren puts both being discovered and cute cryptids in quotes, suggesting each phrase could represent a form of metaphorical language. <laughs> Uh, to call these actual, real creatures cute cryptids, even in play, suggests to me they somehow still exist as cryptids. That's true. Which is to say, unconfirmed animals. <laughs> well, did he say they used to be at some point, or that they... He said before being discovered, all ah, of these were cute cryptids. Gotcha. But he also critically puts being discovered in quotes, <laughs> suggesting that the discovery of them was itself... Not quite an actual event. I think he means before they signed their first record deal. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But yeah, there's no metaphorical discovery of biological entities. Things are or are not empirically known to science. It's as easy as that. Um, And I suppose that's kind of the point I'm going to drive home today. Cryptozoology for me right now is basically just zoology sipping on (laughs) Kool-Aid. To further stress and more poetically articulate this point, I'd like to read an excerpt from Colin Dickey's Lit Hub write-up mm-hmm. on the tensions between folklore and mainstream, i.e. empirical science. Mm-hmm. And yes, here Colin details his attendance of huh? none other than oh. the third annual Cryptozoology Conference in Portland, Maine. Wow. So unbeknownst to Jake and myself, back in 2017? 18. 18? Yeah. There was another critical mind attending that conference, uh, an event we ourselves, as Jake already mentioned at the top, discussed back in episode 41. So here's Colin, quote, I've come to the third annual International Cryptozoology Conference to see where the future of monster hunting lies. Mm -hmm. There are a good 50 or so attendees this Labor Day weekend, more than you can find at some other venues, but less so than you might expect. Certainly less than the uh, people who put out chairs expected. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
The vendors' tables are a bit sparse, not more than two dozen in all. If this was once a major destination, it is no longer. During the breaks, between the talks, a surf rock band obliterates any chance of conversation. <laughs> Their riffs echoing through the open hall, ricocheting off the concrete and steel at deafening levels. <laughs> it was well, you, it, it was funny because as soon as there was a break, everyone just went outside. <laughs> it was truly overwhelming. <laughs> was. I have been to quieter concerts. <laughs> They were like the break band, and it was like unbelievably loud. And the acoustics, as he pointed out, were not really uh, meant for a rock band. <laughs> no, indeed. The logo of the conference this year is a giant panda. Thought by zoologists in the West to be mythical until 1869, its story mirrors that of the mascot of the Cryptozoology Museum itself, Latimeria calumne, the coelacanth. When Marjorie Courtney Latimer, curator of the East London Museum in South Africa, discovered one in a Sherman's trawling net in 1938, the animal had long been presumed extinct. The fossil record indicated it had last been seen on Earth some 70 million years ago. Coelacanths mm -hmm. and pandas are enticing mascots for cryptozoology because they remind us that the animal kingdom still holds mystery for us, and there are still creatures, even large, charismatic megafauna, that might be waiting to be found. But they also raise problems, precisely because their circumstances are so different from most cryptid stories. Rather than a blurry photograph or a dubious eyewitness account, the coelacanth appeared in the 20th century as a corpse, an actual specimen that could be studied, documented, preserved. Mm -hmm. Once scientists went looking for more, they found them. Any potential for a hoax was dispelled as more and more specimens were retrieved, including live specimens, and the animal was documented on film. In other words, unlike cryptids, the panda and the coelacanth refused to remain hidden. If you go to the uh, Harvard Natural History Museum in Cambridge, there is a coelacanth preserved in what appears to be Mountain Dew. Whoa. Some kind of do the Dew joke. <laughs> My not-so-cryptid for, for today is the panda. Uh, just as Colin already wrote, though long known as the real and fantastic creature that it really truly is within its endemic range in China, Westerners, ignorant of its scientific reality, lumped the panda into the realm of mythology for ages, mm. or at least years, or at least days. <laughs> one guy one time was like, ah, I don't think that's real. That can't be real. Also, do you remember this little guy? Oh, I do. Yeah, that Jake was- holding up his- Little rubber panda we got in our, our uh, bag of stuff when we entered that particular conference. Indeed. An adorable, what looks to be a pencil eraser version of a panda. Basically. I'll post a picture of the Mountain Dew seal can and the little baby uh, um, panda in our place. Instagram, probably. Yes. So I'll turn now to a write-up by The Guardian regarding the discovery, quote-unquote, of the, quote-unquote, first giant panda by Westerners back in the 1800s. The first Westerner to clap eyes on a panda is thought to have been a French priest and naturalist known as Armand David. Or David. He'd been posted to China in 1862 to, what else, spread the Christian word, but was a keen naturalist too, seeing nature and the scientific method as another of God's many glories, so at least he was a good one, <laughs> and went on several collecting trips over the course of his stay, sending specimens back to the Museum, <laughs> Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle, flawless, in, of course, Paris. Obviously, this was before international protections on this kind of thing. Yes. Given the panda's celebrity today, 
It is rather strange that David should be famous for bringing Elaphorus Davidianus, commonly known as Per David's Deer, to the attention of the zoological world. But he is also the man who set the panda bandwagon in motion, or the mm-hmm. panda wagon. <laughs> um, the uh, Per David's Deer, I believe, is a very small and very also endangered deer now. Ah, <laughs> great. He's Mr. Finder of Endangered Animals. <laughs> That and or when people found out about stuff back in the late 1800s, they just went out and killed it like crazy. Pretty much, yeah. In April 1869, while stationed at the Dengchi Valley Cathedral in the wild mountains northwest of Chengdu in Sichuan, his hired hunters brought him the body of a young black and white bear. They would send a letter separately to Alphonse Milne Edwards, his zoological contact at the Paris Museum. In it, he tentatively proposed the Latin name Ursus Menonolucus, literally black and white bear, hmm. and went on to describe its extraordinary markings. I have not seen the species in the museums of Europe and is easily the most pretty I have come across. Perhaps it will turn out to be new to science. Mm-hmm. And so it was. The taxonomists eventually setting out the Latin name Aelirapoda melanoluca. Armand David's young black and white bear was used to describe the species to science and now lies somewhere in the zootech, a subterranean vault... <laughs> beneath the museum filled with the remains of millions of dead animals <laughs> which i just imagine as the Scrooge mcduck style <laughs> giant <laughs> chamber full of bones and skin oh, God. um i'm going swimming in the zoo tech uh. so why this isn't exactly cryptozoology as much as this represented a kind of natural discovery for a certain group of people this was not cryptozoology Jake, correct me if I'm wrong in your opinion, but for me, cryptozoology attempts to prove the existence of organisms and entities for which evidence is fundamentally folkloric. Yeah, not necessarily, I mean, not always folkloric, but at least just not, uh, it's, it may be anecdotal, but it's, anecdotal. No, there's no hard evidence that exists and people are still still trying to hunt for more to prove the thing exists. It's kind of a fight against um, incredulity, I guess. <laughs> right. So we'll get into how that can be a troubling approach perhaps next time. Um, As far as I know, few if anyone in the West even knew something like a panda existed back in 1869. And even if they knew of legends of the existence of exotic, otherworldly black and white bears, these were only stories for people in the West. Folks in China had long known of the panda's existence, and there just wasn't any question. There was no cryptological aspect to the creature outside of the West. It was just there. Exactly, it was just there. Uh, Further, clearly, given basically the first meaningful opportunity for it to occur, a body of this elusive creature was produced for Western eyes, and this was at a time when guns, cameras, and general scientific methodologies still widely sucked. (laughs) (laughs) So this is me kind of joining Todd Disotel and feeling somewhat of an exasperation at the community of folks who insist on the existence of my favorite, (laughs) Bigfoot. Um. One wants to keep an open mind, but at some point, you just have to produce compelling, scientifically irrefutable evidence. So, for Lauren and others to hold the panda up as a kind of proof that cryptozoology works is basically stealing the credit that is due to the original progenitors of discovery, happenstance, and good old-fashioned, certifiable, boots-on-the-ground, objective reality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I guess just to wrap up my side, 
at the end of the day, cryptozoology requires enthusiastic faith in the physical existence of creatures that are described solely in anecdotal evidence. Right. And as much as this is a fun exercise, um, it is also fundamentally pseudoscientific. Mm-hmm. And it's a bummer. We love the stories. We love to talk about this stuff. And we're going to keep doing it for many oh, episodes yeah. from now as well. But it is definitely... And we, we have a different special report where we talk about the methodology of all sorts of paranormal research, cryptozoology, and uh, and supernatural. And uh, I don't remember which one those were, but that was <laughs> sometime <laughs> right. a couple of years ago. Previous ones. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I will... Um, if I remember, when I listen back to this recording, I will make a separate tab on our website there's oh, not nice. just we have our, our all episodes tab we have i'll make one that's just special reports and put those mm, together i like that it'll link to the episodes but like that way we can at least make it easier to refer to them cause we have enough of them now right but yeah it's, it's a different entirely different way of doing research um i mean we research stuff for these episodes by just looking up stuff online that's not the same as the kind of research we did over the years, like the together and stuff, for example, where we'd go out in the field and collect specimens and then, you know, take measurements and stuff and actually collect data, uh, run analyses. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that your, you know, your uh, qualitative research is not as valid as our quantitative. That's not necessarily the problem. It's just that the scientific method has been pretty well, uh, well honed to the point where it, it works for stuff. And it can work mm-hmm. in different ways. It can it can work on qualitative data, but it it is fundamentally an approach that you need to have at least somewhere in your system of doing stuff for it to ever really yield uh, believable results of any kind. Right. Folks need to be able to replicate things. Yes. For themselves. If you saw a black bear somewhere in the woods, there's a good chance someone can go back to where you were to find that creature again, assuming certain times of year and it's not migrating or something like this. Yeah hard to do in the vast majority of cryptozoological uh, reports or if it is done there is rarely if ever any kind of documentation that is irrefutable you get footprints you get uh, broken branches uh saw a wave in on the lake just things that you can even if you got pictures and stuff it's still like all right well what was that you get plaster casts there's so many of them at the cryptozoology museum um plaster casts of footprints and it's like, okay, well, you know, there's a depression in the ground that's shaped like that. Was it a footprint? If you find a moose print in the woods, if you follow those prints, depending on the time of day, you may find a sleeping moose later on. <laughs> if it's the middle of a hot summer day, you might find it kind of bedded down for the evening. If you try and track these supposed like Sasquatch footprints, you're probably not going to find more than a couple of them. And no one yet has found a sasquatch hanging out so yeah exactly it's just it's a different kind of thing if they say they have their cameras are mysteriously far away yes <laughs> in the air of the digital camera on every device we possibly own it's like come on it's my big bugaboo all these stories people see these crazy things no one ever thinks to take a picture yeah it's a bummer but yeah so that's <laughs> that's a, a first look into you know the some of the problems that there are with cryptozoology compared to other natural sciences oh yeah but uh before before we get into my general gripes and a particular animal that i will describe the discovery of let's thank some folks Ooh, for starters let's thank uh this beer i'm drinking are you talking about four phantoms i'm talking about budweiser <laughs> our newest sponsor <laughs> budweiser <laughs> god uh anheuser I- bush 
I wonder how much they have to pay for us to say nice things. <laughs> <laughs> Man. No, of course, we're talking about four families. Right. <laughs> the antithesis of Budweiser. Mm-hmm. A groovy and delicious little brewery in Western Mass. Soon to have a brick and mortar. Ooh. And as everyone gets vaccinated. Well, I'll be making a pilgrimage. You know, I just have a thing that I'm not going to say out loud, which are going to make us somewhat obligated to it at some point down the road. After, you know, we come out the other side of this whole pandemic thing, God willing, uh, sometime in the next decade, <laughs> it would be really cool if we could do some kind of like um, meetup or something with any listeners who can make it and oh, uh, do some kind of yes. uh, thing there. Perhaps we could, yes, we could We could organize this as things move along. Mm-hmm. So everyone begin buying international tickets. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> and Drew, start being okay with this idea we just had <laughs> yeah <laughs> prepare um but yes four phantoms it's a brewery they have awesome beer that is currently available in massachusetts and rhode island if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. distributed where beer is sold most often or available for curbside pickup mm-hmm. in greenfield i believe and currently some of their offerings include what are you drinking there? Jake looks like bite back. Or it is bite something? back. Yeah, it's the blood hey. orange sour that I think they still have kicking around. Uh, very, very tasty. They also have another sour I'm very fond of. It's out for the summer called Purple Potion. It's mm, a poison, so boysenberry sour with hints of lavender. I think I've mentioned several times I don't like floral stuff, but I do like that. Mm. If you like lavender, you'll get enough to enjoy it. If you don't like me, you will find, oh, that's a nice little something. Living in Yumstown. Mm-hmm. What else they got? They what? Also ha- Sorry. Huh? I was asking you what else they got, and you were trying to tell me what else they got. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> they also have a Battle Standard. This is one I bring up every time now, but I like it a lot. It's a lager with German malt and American, haven't said it in a minute, Equinot. <laughs> and Amarillo hops. Remember the Amarillo? Um, I did a tiny bit of hop homework <laughs> months ago, and... Um, I'm still doing my book report on that, <laughs> which is to say that it's an intriguing combination of hops. <laughs> that was my major takeaway. Beer uh, good. It's very tasty. Very tasty lager, even if you don't like lagers. They also have Hand of Doom, which we've talked about a number of times. It'll put you to bed. Big old oatmeal stout. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, delicious at any time of day. So do check them out. Do uh, review them on untapped.com where you can help improve their profile, and that in turn improves their distribution. Yeah. And everyone should try this beer, so get out there and give them a review. If it's cute and mentions us at least once, we can find you and read it on here, and you can be a goofball alongside us yeah. for the rest of your friends and family that don't listen to this show. So <laughs> check it out, and thank you for Phantoms. We thank really appreciate much. it. Yes. And while we're in the thanking mood, let's thank... One specific individual who supports us on Patreon. Ooh, that means we're going to have to boot up the NC AAA device, which of course is an ancient computer-type machine. Uh, It's deeper and stranger than that. And we will run the Pander function, which is the Patron Appreciation Neural Die for Evaluation of Risk. I haven't heard the machine turn on just yet, but I'm assuming it's on. on. Ah, (laughs) the warm sound. We will, of course, plug the machine in the back of our brains. Oh. That allows us to interface directly from our brains to the dark ether, which helps us calculate which monsters, creepy crawlies, cryptids, whatever, in the world our Patreon patrons need to personally watch out for. So this week, 
We're asking Gene B. B of Colchester, Colchester Vermont. Colchester, Vermont. Look on, look on the be out look on for <laughs> Gallitrot. Gallitrot. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Gallitrots are supernatural canines similar to phantom black dogs. They're believed to live in underground. Live in underground in hollow hills or fairy mounds. Quote unquote. It is a creature of northern Britain and Suffolk. It's highly Suffolk. <laughs> Suffolk. Suffolk? Yeah, I'm like, Suffolk. <laughs> Just emphasize fuck. Suffolk. Suffolk. <laughs> yes. Isn't there a Suffolk? I guess it's maybe in New York. I think there's one. There's, there's a Norfolk in, uh, in Massachusetts. Norfolk. Anyway, <laughs> keep going. It's been seen in those places, specifically near old derelict buildings and ancient cemeteries. It is difficult to spot and causes fear among men. Yeah. A strange white hound the size of a bullock would appear when a serious disease or injury was about to happen. Period. Then the dog would sit outside of the terminally ill person until their death. Should hope they did sit outside the terminally ill person, otherwise that would be extremely violent. Uh. It is also known to hide on the lonely roads and to hunt down wandering travelers at night, killing and eating them. <laughs> Another version that says it had uh, body parts of a human, such as a human with a dog's head. Interestingly enough, that's that's not it's a whole body, not just body parts. That's a lot of body parts. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all of them except for one. Um, so you know, Gene, I'd stay off the roads of Suffolk at night. If you're yes. about to get really sick and you see a dog just start hanging out outside, maybe go to a hospital of your body. Yeah, if if the dog just is inside, inside of you, you're probably okay. I would also avoid furry forums. Just in case. And otherwise, yeah, thank you so much for your support. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of our patrons. Uh, even at just a dollar a month, you can get uh, your own cryptid creature What's it calculated for you by the pander function? What other rewards are available to folks at uh, other levels of support, Wyatt? My goodness, you get access to outtakes. Jake and I, as clumsy as we sound, even in this highly edited version of the show, are <laughs> even clumsier. And you can decide for yourself whether <laughs> you find it funny. Uh, we have bonus minisodes that we are now sort of occasionally doing regularly. Ooh. Pretty, yeah, we're doing yes. pretty decent. Oh, Wyatt's receiving something he wanted. Um, we're, we've been doing our best to do them weekly. We didn't do one last week because Wyatt was going to die, and he did, but he's back now. We're going to try and record two this week to make up for it. We're trying to have weekly mini shows sure to so. go with uh, with the weekly maxi sodes. Um, the also, maxi sodes, yes. yeah. There's also maxi pads, I think I want to call them from now on. We can. We also have uh, exclusive stickers that you cannot get anywhere else. You can't buy them. You can't. We won't even let you look at them unless we decide you can. That's right. And uh, those are only available quarterly. They they come out once a quarter. That's four times a year, uh, three months at a time. And uh, they're available to whoever is a patron at that time until we run out of them, and then they're not. They're then they're gone, and they're not coming back unless they are. And so far they aren't. And right now, we're behind enough on <laughs> releasing these stickers that we're doing three quarters worth at once. So quarter four of 2020, quarter one of this year, and the current quarter, which it doesn't end until the end of June. But we're just going to get ahead of it. And if you join now, you're going to get all three stickers, even if you weren't a member back in December. Or if you were a member in December and uh, you're not anymore, you're going to get all three. 
deal with it. If your address changed, then maybe you won't. I don't know. I'll try and contact you if that happens. But uh, it's all Jake worth doing. Jake is floating up off the ground. Oh, thank God. He's back down. <laughs> and, um, and also, any of these tiers can be subscribed to at an annual rate, and you'll get like the equivalent of two months off for, for paying for a whole year at once. 12 months. 12 months. For about 10. <laughs> you heard it. So thank you very much. <laughs> and, thank you all. Uh, Appreciate it. Now back to the show. Uh, my- so Jake, uh, yes. Damn it! I was gonna try to <laughs> step on your toes again. <laughs> uh, uh, so Jake, uh, yeah, I, I believe uh, you. Um, and now <laughs> let's. My, so so you, you begin. My segment. Take it away. It's coming at you from PBS. The uh, 1999 Nova Peanut article. Peanut butter sex. Peanut butter sex. <laughs> it's a Nova article from a very auspicious year uh, written by Peter Tyson. I shall begin. The first evidence that a fabled donkey-like creature existed in the heart of the Congo appeared in Henry Morton Stanley's 1860 book In Darkest Africa. Ooh. Yeah, Stanley wrote the uh, wrote that the Mbuti pygmies who lived in the Ituri forest, quote, knew a donkey and called it Ati. They said they sometimes catch them in pits, but no one had ever heard of donkeys in the Congo. The only member of the horse family known from the region was the zebra, and zebras don't live in forests, especially the- Is this the origin of Donkey Kong? Why? Don't give it away. I'm sorry. Uh, especially not in the deep jungle where the Mbuti hunted. Intrigued by Stanley's report, Sir Henry Johnston, the governor of Uganda- because we were at the goddamn height of colonialism at the time. Yeah, yeah, I was a... Questioned some pygmies he met in 1899. Just to interject for a moment, I did need to look this up, but African pygmies is, it turns out, the generally accepted term for a few Central African indigenous ethnic groups, mostly in the Congo River Basin. Hmm. Uh, I already mentioned the Mbuti, who live in the northeasternmost part of what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There's also the Mbenga of modern-day Cameroon, uh, Gabon, the Republic of the Congo, and the Central African Republic... And the Twa of modern-day Rwanda, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Tanzania, Uganda, Zambia, Angola, and Namibia. Hmm. They at once understood what I meant, he wrote, and pointing to a zebra skin and a live mule, they informed me that the creature in question was like a mule with zebra stripes on it. When they showed him the elusive creature's cloven hoof, uh, cloven-footed tracks, Johnson changed his mind. I disbelieved them, he wrote, and imagined that we were merely following a forest eland. Uh, do you know what an eland is? It's a uh, kind of antelope Isn't thing. Isn't it it's like got, an isolated uh, land mass, water on all sides? Yeah, like, like a peninsula, but with it's cut off from the land, and it has uh, spiral horns on its head. Finally, when he got hold of a skin, Johnston changed his mind yet again. And upon receiving this skin, I saw at once what it was, namely a close relation to the giraffe. From that skin, a pair of skulls, and the pygmy's tails, Johnston was able to conceive what the mysterious animal must look like. It was mm. a strange beast. As the zoologist Bernard Hulmans, I don't know, uh, has noted. <laughs> I'm not sure where he's from, so I have no idea how to try and pronounce those vowels. I am human. Hulman. Uh, it reminded one of those mythical creatures comprised of the body parts of various animals. It was like a large antelope, but with no visible horns. It had ears similar to, but larger than a donkey's. Its hindquarters were striped like those of a zebra, and it had an anteater's long tongue. Few Europeans believe it existed. Their thought was that if they hadn't seen it themselves, it must not be real. Never mind what mm. the people who actually lived there said. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, 
1901, English zoologist Philip Lutley Sclater published a paper in the Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London entitled On an Apparently New Species of Zebra from the Semliki Forest. <laughs> I, was, I thought about either doing a voice for the title or for his quotes. The quotes go on so much longer, so I, <laughs> so I just the title. He said, I have now had time to examine more carefully the two waist belts made of skin forwarded to me by Sir Harry Johnston, KCB, FZS, and already exhibited at the meeting on December 18th last. I have come to the conclusion that whether the native account of the animal from which they are taken is precisely correct or not, the specimens themselves cannot be referred to any known species of zebra and must belong to an undescribed animal, which I propose, provisionally at least, to name after its discoverer, with the following characters until better specimens are obtained. Equus Johnstoni. He goes on to describe the skin samples and how they differ from any known zebra, as well as to explain that zebras are very much a savanna species and would be unlikely to turn up in dense forests. Slater goes on, quote, While I entertained for months the pygmy band who had been captured by a filibustering German, and the restoration of whom to their homes was one of my motives for going to the Congo Free State, I questioned them on this subject, and they were very explicit. They told me that they called the animal Okapi. On that trip, he also learned that in Mbuba, the name is Okapi. Thus, the animal finally became known to Western science as the Okapi. It would later be renamed Okapia Johnstoni. So that is uh, some of the beginning of how, how the Okapi was discovered. For folks who are not familiar with this animal, I'll go back to the Nova article. Uh, it's a heavy-bodied animal with a coat of reddish chestnut. We'll, send, we'll have a link to a photo of it, of course. Uh, yellowish white cheeks and thighs ringed with alternating stripes of cream and purplish black. Hmm. Johnson's last guess about this oddball creature was right. It's most closely related to the giraffe. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah good guess. And I was I was pleasantly surprised by the uh, how little racism there was in the accounts yeah. here looking this up. 19th century Britain in Africa. I was like, oh, geez. It's a rough time. But like, yeah, this guy, uh, he spoke several different um, indigenous languages of Africa. He brought people back to their homes who had been removed from them. I think that's not a thing I would have expected. So indeed, not as bleak as I thought we'd be getting to. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the colonialism of all this stuff next week. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. To bring to light a huge unknown mammal in the 20th century astounded the world. As one scientist has written, we today have no idea of, quote, the romance surrounding the discovery of the Okapi, nor of the excitement mm. caused in natural history circles, first by the vague reports of its presence and later by its actual finding. Those who disbelieve indigenous tales of fabulous creatures might do well to remember the Okapi, as well as certain points surrounding its discovery. I'll pause here for a second. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so far I'm, I'm enjoying this one even more than the panda tale. Uh, in no small part because I, I really enjoy getting to hear about the earlier stage of its description in western literature of course mm -hmm. again much like the panda this creature simply existed so for right. the folks who knew it there wasn't some great mystery they were just struggling to articulate it to a person who didn't have a handle on how to fuse things that they knew together right. into a proper proxy for what it actually was and so it does make sense as it's a more understandable form of kind of like the cryptid type thing where right. lots of different people describe this thing that you haven't yet seen so you're just sort of like geez where is it is it right. out there for real also very uh delightfully <laughs> if not progressive at least just sort of focused on the matters at hand type uh detailing of 
its identification and uh, description as they go. And yeah, luckily the people who were actually digging into this matter and doing on the ground research were taking uh, the word of the people who knew better. <laughs> so right. It was nice. Exactly. And there's people back in Europe who are like, yeah, I don't know if that's actually real. <laughs> so the reason I brought up the copy in relation to cryptozoology is that as we've already guessed, similar to the panda, it's often cited in that field as a success story. Uh, I think we saw pictures of that in the museum. I think there may have been a previous conference where they had that on the cover instead of the panda. Even the emblem for the short-lived International Society of Cryptozoology was an okapi. And cryptozoologists are taking some totally valid lessons from this animal story, though, at least. For example, plenty of legends do often hold some truth. Uh, in the Middle Ages, ivory horns supposedly taken from unicorns were peddled to European royalty for 20 times their weight in gold. Wow. Collectors had no idea that these long spiral tusks actually just came from narwhals. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fairly commonly known that seals, manatees, dugongs, etc. are thought to be the origins for mermaid myths. It's mm -hmm. kind of funny. I'd always thought, I'd always just heard that the, uh, the manatees and dugongs part of it, which really they don't look very human. <laughs> but, um, but the way the seals no. peek up out of the water and look at you, I could see that getting folks' imaginations going. Especially at a distance. Right. I mean, people have seen seals in, you know, and they, they come up close to shore and stuff, too. So that would be. But if you're out right. to sea for a long time and see a thing pop up, look at you. Yeah, you might not know. Mm -hmm. While traveling across Arabia on his return from China in 1294, Marco Polo heard of a bird on Madagascar that was so large it could carry elephants aloft in its talons. Until they went extinct only about a thousand years ago, Madagascar's elephant birds were the largest birds that ever lived. They couldn't lift an elephant, but they did stand 10 feet tall and weigh close to half a ton. Wow. Uh, on a similar note to that, too, we've we've talked multiple times about the Mopinguari very possibly being an ancestral story of giant sloths in the mm -hmm. Amazon. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things that seem like legends or have become legends even are based in actual biological fact, which is really neat. Right. Um, so local people's tales of these fantastic creatures can actually just be descriptions of real stuff. For centuries, Europeans traveling in remote areas were happy to disregard any legend an indigenous person might have of beasts that they themselves had not seen. Yet indigenous people tend to know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. In Africa alone, there are just so many instances of animals that foreigners thought were just impossible, even as locals were like, no, it's there. Just because a scientist hasn't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And this here is kind of the core concept of cryptozoology. Despite common wisdom, the world has not been fully explored. Uh, in 1812, the renowned French naturalist ba uh, Baron or Baron Georges, oh Christ, it's my turn now. Baron <laughs> Georges Cuvier boldly ass uh, asserted that, "quote There is little hope of discovering new species of large quadrupeds." Hmm. Cuvier was way off the mark. A oh, short yeah. list of large mammals that have been identified since 1812 might include, in addition to your copy stuff like that. Uh, the mountain gorilla, the Indian tapir, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, a few different um, primates, the siamang, the galada, uh, and there's the Himalayan takin, which is a really cool like mountain goat looking thing. I think it's more closely related to antelopes. Hmm. Um, they're white. They have really cool looking faces. Pear David's deer, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Przewalski's horse. I'm probably saying that wrong. <laughs> the white rhinoceros and even the Kodiak brown bear are all things that had hmm. not been like uh, classified by Western science quite yet by the early 19th century. All wow. things that are uh, pretty, like, especially the gorillas, like major things that... Uh, Big old things, yeah. Yeah. Discoveries of large, previously unknown animals do continue to happen all the time. Uh, since 1986, several new species of primate have turned up in Madagascar. 
in the 90s in a single mountainous region on the border between Vietnam and Laos, scientists identified a new species of giant barking deer, a new kind of pig, and a 200-pound bovid known as the Pseudo-Oryx. Whoa. Don't even get us started on the ocean. Oh, my God. And this article was written, of course, in the year the Matrix came out. So a lot of stuff has been discovered in the last 22 years. This happens all the time. Yeah, constantly. All of that said, I've just been leading up this whole time to a great big but. <laughs> Science doesn't know about every species on the planet. Stuff that scientists don't know about can still be real. And indigenous descriptions of creatures can often reflect flesh and blood animals that are genuinely out there doing their thing. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean the cryptid enthusiasts have carte blanche to legitimize all of their beliefs at will. Similar to what you're getting into, Sophie. There's oodles of species not yet known to Western science, but many of them are known to the people who live around them. Mm-hmm. Either way, their existence isn't contested, it's just not widely known. Cryptids, meanwhile, are usually defined as creatures whose existence or survival to modern day from ancient times is disputed or unsubstantiated. So there may be some friggin' frog in New Guinea that the rest of the world has no idea exists, but that doesn't make it a cryptid just because we don't know of it yet. Exactly. It's more the belief in a thing by some parties in spite of a lack of available evidence that kind of that makes it a cryptid. Um, and it, it's, as you said, too, it's it's not just that there isn't evidence yet, but also trying to get evidence has not yielded it. Correct. But what about real species that European colonizers didn't believe in? Is that is that a contested species? I would argue that it's less a case of scientists being unable to get proof of a thing, no matter how hard they tried, and more a case of them just not having gotten any proof yet. Because, mm-hmm. like you said, with with the uh, with the panda, once they brought one back, like oh, well here it is. Um, with the Okapi, they had pieces and stuff, and eventually they were actually able to find them in person. It's like oh, right. here is one. Got an actual specimen. Bring back. But it was just a matter of time. A lot of the cryptids we know of now, it's been a matter of a long time talking about them. Still don't have specimens. Your points also make me think of, and maybe we get into this more next week, but Mm -hmm. the aspect of conflating indigenous knowledge of the environment with indigenous tales, which is something we've touched on a number of times on the show. Yep. Um, and, and I think that maybe is you're something about to we'll get into that right now, but anyway. uh, not. No, I think it is something we'll probably dig into more deeply next week because there's a lot to say about that, and uh, yeah. and yeah, there's so much of dismissing. It's actually I do want to bring up things like Mokele Mbembe next week too, because mm. on mm-hmm. one hand you have say the Okapi, which is a real thing. They're saying, oh yeah, that lives in the woods there. It's it's this is what we call it, and that's just what it looks like. And people are like, nah, I don't know about that, and then. In the case of that, it's like, oh, there's this animal that lives in the woods. It's like, oh, is it a big monster? They're like, no, no, it's this. It's like, oh, it's, it's a dinosaur in there, isn't there? Like, mm, no, it's <laughs> this other. Th- so it's it's <laughs> Europeans can go the entire opposite direction with stuff too. Oh yeah, absolutely. But it all comes down to just basically just not listening to indigenous people, and that is annoying. <laughs> but in spite of all this, we've been saying a lot of doing a lot of nice saying this episode because we can't help it with the subject matter. It's really hard yeah. not to. Uh, still, there's always room for discovery, and that's something that I think zoologists, both crypto and non, kind of look forward to. Uh, some more quotes just at the end of this article that are kind of fun. That the great 19th century American naturalist Louis Agassi, uh, Agassi once said that, quote, each time that a new and surprising fact is revealed by science, people say first that it is not true, then that it disagrees with religion, and finally that everyone has always known it. <laughs> there you go. Folks I who like dismiss that. local tales of strange creatures off in the forest may do well to consider these words, just as they may do well to remember the story of that fantastic antelope donkey anteater giraffe 
Theo copy. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's cited as a cryptozoology success story. Based on our kind of interpretation of this stuff, it's it's not really, but we have all kinds of fun things we want to dig into with you next week to really really pull apart aspects of of each different version of looking at things and what that means. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we hope you'll join us for that because we think it'd be a good time. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add about the Okapi or the things we talked about so far? Other than the fact that we both basically picked black and white animals? For- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, man, I think you covered it very, very nicely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, diving back in next week. Mm-hmm. Maybe criticize it even a little bit more, but also <laughs> we're doing so from a place of, of love. And we'll be doing so uh, on both sides of it too, because not exactly. just not just in cryptozoology, but in um, just all of the natural science endeavors of Europeans. There's just a whole lot of settler colonialism that we need to unpack there as There's well. There's a ton. Mm-hmm. I will say as well, as much as cryptozoology perhaps puts the story before the facts, I think science can be guilty of this too. Absolutely, even if they have the facts at their disposal. Yep. At the end of the day, a lot of science is essentially statistically supported storytelling. So there is sort of a mythology there, even if, in at least in that case, we can go out and hopefully replicate it to produce the same narrative, put it that way. Yeah. It's an understandable space of uh, ambiguity between cryptozoology and, let's call it, Big Z zoology. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we'll we'll dive into it more next time. Yeah. And uh, until then, thanks for listening. If you want to rate and review the show, that would help us out in a big way. Uh, we appreciate that very much. Apple Podcast, of course, is the big one. I also want to say, talking of settler colonialism was not meant to be as uncomfortably timely as it has worked out to be. Oh, yeah. We had planned Wolf these episodes Town. out a few weeks back, now recording and releasing it during the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Uh, the top links in the whole episode, we're going to have a bunch of links. We've mentioned a whole bunch of things this episode, but the top ones going to take you to ways to help Palestinians right now, and we hope you will do so. Yes, please. Thinking of folks over there very much, and uh, yeah, thank you guys so much, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>